Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. My guest today is David Solomon, an associate professor at the Carroll School of Management at Boston College. He is, in my words, an up-and-coming rock star in academic finance, in part because he writes on topics of interest to me and to the audience of this podcast, Dividends and Behavioral Finance. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So you and a co-author, Samuel Hartzmark, uh, from the uh, University of Chicago School of Business, have published two articles recently, the last couple of years, or they're in process, and they are publicly available on SSRN. They're both about uh, dividends, and if I were to just characterize them broadly, they're both about the difficulties of being in the stock market and seeking dividends. There are a lot of challenges that, that one encounters, and I think you and your co-author have done just an outstanding job of both highlighting those challenges and uh, identifying them, providing a history and a context for them. How did, how did you and Samuel come up with this particular topic? I know this by checking your, your backgrounds that uh, both of you have worked together uh, substantially for a number of years, but how, how did you guys come to focus on uh, topics concerning dividends? So where we started with, there is a very strange finding in, uh, in the asset pricing literature um, by this paper called Heston and Sadka, 2008, on calendar seasonality, which basically says you take stocks that have high returns last January and the January before that and the January before that and the January before that, they have high returns this January. And if you take stocks that have low returns in all of the previous Januaries, they'll have low returns this January. And that holds actually for every month of the year. It's one of those big, weird findings that it's like, it's a kind of outstanding puzzle. It's like, and so already knew that it's not earnings. And so Sam and I, back in the day, were thinking like, well, what happens every 12 months that might going on at a firm that might be explaining it? And we're like, maybe it's dividends. So we had a look. And it turned out that it doesn't explain it at all. But you did find this, this other finding that was the basis of our, our first work, that you do get these high returns around dividend payment. Okay? It's like on the day that it's announced in the lead up to the X day, and then low returns afterwards. And so that got us thinking about the whole thing of like, huh, that's really weird that you're getting all of this, what looks like price pressure and seems to be all this demand for dividends. And then a bunch of other papers then that, that kind of followed up for us trying to understand what we'd found in this earlier paper and what might be driving it all. You know, I, uh, as I think we were discussing the green room and the audience will know, I, by, my day job is asset management and focusing on dividend portfolios. And I can, I can testify to the, uh, and you refer to it as a disconnect, between investing for dividends in the stock market. Uh, that seems to be just one of many phenomena that you guys then identify as, from an academic finance perspective, somewhat curious. The first article, at least that is completely focused on this, what you call the dividend disconnect is the, the name of it. It's a article that came out in the Journal of Finance uh, last year. It was written in 2018 or finished in 2018. And it, it highlights a lot of these, what I call challenges, and you guys use a different term for them, which is a, a little bit stronger, maybe uh, use the word fallacy, but provide a highlight for uh, an overview of, of some of the issues that you find curious from an academic perch. I can, by the way, clarify from a practical perch as to why they're less curious, but from an academic perch, why some things don't seem to make sense about investing for dividends. So I guess what we were, I guess one thing that I would probably start out with is that you want to think about a difference between 
finding companies that have an underlying stream of cash flows such that they're able to be reliable, ongoing, value-based businesses that can keep paying dividends, which is one idea. And the other one is I have to collect the specific dividend, even if it means I bought the stock one day before the dividend and sold the stock one day after the dividend. You know, and those are those are, I guess those are kind of slightly different variants. And I think in some sense our our thoughts were kind of on on the latter one, which is to say over and above the broad attributes of this company that that that's this dividend paying company that might be doing well, how should we think about these guys that seem to be doing the latter one, which is like buying before this, you know, before the X day, holding it over and selling it afterwards. And one, you know, and our, our kind of view of it was that even if you don't believe that Miller Medigliani literally is true with no friction and there's no irrelevance, it's still broadly true that if, if you pay a $1 dividend, the price is going to drop well, slightly less than a dollar for various reasons, but it's going to drop. It's going to, you know, most of that is going to be seen in a price decline, which is to say that on the day that it pays, the dividend is not coming for free. You know, you're getting money out of the company, but it's, you know, and it may still be a good long-term trading strategy, but that the dividend has a cost. Back up a little bit there. The dividend has a cost. It does come out of the share price. That's, uh, you know, some of the basic concepts that we find ourselves uh, contending with. Certainly professionals understand that and retail investors or institutional investors, once you remind them of it, so get it. Yeah, a company pays a dollar dividend. It had a $20 share price before the day day of its X date, it opens up at $19, but you have a dollar in your account from the dividend. Can we back up just a little bit without getting too lost in the weeds of academic finance and highlight the the points made by Miller and Modigliani in 1961, a full 60 years ago. I have an ax to grind, as you know, and the audience will soon know. But the main tenets of uh, Miller and Modigliani are, and why do they cast a pallor over dividend investing 60 years later? So uh, let me give you my... So I am... I am at the most behavioral and reduced form end of academic research. So I'll tell you how I think about Miller Medigliani in sort of building it up from the ground up, which is that people, you know, that if you have a bank account and that bank account has $10 and you pay yourself $1, you withdraw $1 out of that bank account and put it in your pocket, you are no richer than before. You still have $10. Okay. If the $10 in that bank account is split between 10 people who own it jointly and they jointly decide to pay themselves 10 cents each adding up to a dollar, they are still no richer or poorer than before. If that bank account is in fact the proceeds of the cardboard box factory's profits, which they also jointly own, and they pay themselves $1 out of the $10 in the cardboard box factory profits bank account, they're still no bit different off than before. And that's a company. Ish. And, you know, it's like it just comes from the fact that if you're the ultimate owners and it's all your money, it's it, that's effectively what a dividend payment does. It, it makes sense. It matters a great deal if you have the money coming into the, the bank account. Like, is it a profitable business? It can make sense if there's other weird things going on, like there's tax reasons or if the manager can squander the money if you don't withdraw it or something like that. So there's many reasons why it might still matter. But before you add that up, that's effectively where it's like it, it doesn't make a difference immediately at a high level for profits, whether you've been paying it out or not. Fair, fair enough. And that absolutely true and indisputable. The Miller and Modigliani, Modigliani Franco Modigliani, Merton Miller, their argument has over time taken a, a practical import in suggesting that 
drive it in the words of others, including academics and corporate leaders making these decisions, that uh, driving income stream from a dividend payment or deriving it from a capital gain harvest is identical from a uh, classic finance perspective. And therefore, dividends themselves are what they call the, the relevancy theorem. And so whether it's both the, you know, a dollar less after the X date, which is understood and clearly true, but by extension, its argument has taken on a much more profound uh, form in many ways informs share buybacks, which didn't even exist at the time of Miller and Modigliani. They only take off, made legal in the 1980s and ah, interesting. In the 90s. Interesting. I didn't know that they yeah. were that recent. Yeah, so uh, buybacks are, are uh, relatively recent phenomenon. They were permitted by safe harbor legislation in 1982. They existed before then, but very, very limited. And as you know, outside the United States, they're also very, very limited. But in the U.S., made much more practical in 82, yeah. take off in the 90s, now exceed dividend payments. And basically, the argument with Miller and Modigliani applied justifies either not paying a dividend or using share buybacks in yeah. lieu of a dividend. Uh, and uh, encouraging investors to view a capital gain harvested as identical to a dividend payment. And that's where we're going to all part company because a dividend payment is a distribution of profits from an ongoing enterprise. Taking profits in a share price is something entirely different. Academic finance likens the two. Business ownership theory or business ownership uh, does not uh, liken the two. They're, they're dramatically different. But that being said, Here's the problem, which I think your, your Journal of Finance article really addresses, is that to be a dividend investor in a stock, what I call a stock market, creates a lot of obstacles. Let's go, go back to some of the issues that, that uh, you and your co-author uh, raise uh, in, in that article, and there's really kind of a long list of them, and they're, they're quite interesting. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I guess the way our focus is not was never on the kind of question of how should companies distribute profits or anything like that, but much more on the end investor question of like, you have a position in a total company. How should you track the performance of that position between the dividend and the price change? Okay. And think about those two bits. And I guess part of what we were, what we were looking at is that in, in standard academic finance, there's this general assumption that everyone thinks in returns, everyone as the dividend up, and adds with the price change, and that's literally the only number they contemplate. And so part of what we were, we were sort of looking at in the first paper in the dividend disconnect is that people's behavior doesn't seem to be as, you know, doesn't seem consistent with them thinking about both these two parts as equivalent, which is that on the one hand, when people are thinking about what is, quote, the performance of my share, and, you know, they're looking at those day-to-day -day movements, partly because of the structure of brokerage statements and, you know, most online portals we've been able to find, they're mostly just looking at a price change. So you're not, if the price has dropped because you got paid a dividend, half the time, the only thing you're going to notice is your cash balance has gone up. Okay. And, and so when you kind of look at that, when they, when they do all of these various behavioral trading patterns, like do they sell it again, or do they, you know, do they roll stock over from one to the next? The question of what are they thinking about as performance looks like it's mostly just price changes. But the flip side is they're not ignoring the dividends. It's that they also really like companies that pay dividends and tend to hang on to them longer and tend to pay less attention to their performance. So people seem to think about both parts of it, but they don't treat both parts equivalently 
as we tend to do in, in sort of standard asset pricing assumptions when we think when we think about what should performance be in some general sense. So there's a free what you guys call the free dividends fallacy, which is separate in the eyes or the mind of many investors from the share price performance. But your point is, and it's absolutely true and indisputable, even by someone like me, that uh, dividends do come out of the share price on the X date. Therefore, the share price only definition of performance for dividend paying securities is going to be, as it were, all of the things being kept equal, which they never are, going to be lower than the total return of a dividend paying security versus a um, non-dividend paying security. So that free dividend fallacy, you guys follow up and has argued that it has real world implications affecting trading, pricing, forecasting. Do you want to go through through some of that? Yeah, no, for sure. So it's like one of the things that we were we're kind of looking at in that paper is, is sort of finding that these, you know, that these guys tend to have, you know, that, that one one way, you know, one of the bits of evidence about the, uh, the sort of pricing implications of stuff is looking at the idea of, well, if people are thinking about dividends as just some free stream of income, okay, it, it is a stream of income, but if you think of it as a, a free stream of income, well, what, what kind of things do you, do you kind of compare it to, okay? Um, and you can kind of look at, you know, the um, things like how much demand is there, you know, for dividends in general, in the background of, you know, around, the, you can measure that in terms of the price rise around the period just before the lead up to, you know, the lead up to dividends being paid. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you find various things like, for instance, that the lower interest rates seem to cause more demand for dividends, which is to say, when I can't earn money on the bank account, I earn, I want to earn money on my, on my yield. But again, this is not long-term performance of companies. This is guys bidding up the price two days before the X day, which is sort of harder to think about of like, there's a long-term value proposition related to the company. Um, in some other work we found, you know, in, in a similar kind of fashion, there seems to be more demand around the time of, you know, when the VIX is high, when markets are in recession, when the economy is in recession, uh, you know, things like that. And so that, that tends to sort of show up in various, in various kind of pricing, pricing features. So one of the, the pricing features is that you have that uh, forecast bias, that analysts are too optimist, optimistic on price forecasts for high dividend stocks for reasons of what sell-side analysts, whatever's going on in their head. But they're ignoring the fact that every quarter, a little, little bit is going to come out of uh, that share price. And they don't forecast total returns. They forecast uh, share price. Now, I, I might dispute that because I do see, tend to see a total return forecast. But I also uh, see what you see. That is that it, it, if you're focused just on the share price, it's easy to overestimate what the share price for a high dividend yielding stock will be uh, because you're going to lose 3 or 4 or 5% per year from the dividend. And that comes out of the price. Yeah, exactly. So that, yeah, that that makes an issue. I might push back on one of the points you make an interesting sure. uh, a, a claim, and uh, about that you have observed based on your analysis that dividend reinvestment is relatively infrequent. That is, it's not you didn't see that as dominant in in the and it has really important implications. Can you explain why, if if you do not see dividend reinvestment, you know what the implication of that is? Okay, yeah, sure. So when we say reinvestment, what we mean is that. Companies, when a stock pay, so so mute, so this has been known that there's been this finding in, uh, in among like retail traders from the there's various studies in the 90s 
that looked at if you look at sort of retail accounts, if they get paid a dividend, they just tend to consume it. Okay, they'll spend it on stuff, which is fine. And that's normal. That was normally ascribed to this idea that these were people that actually were relying on the income stream, and that was how they were financing their day-to-day consumption, and that's all fine. And so then we were saying, well, what happens when a mutual fund or an institutional investor gets a dividend? Because a mutual fund is not financing a day-to-day consumption stream like, like a retiree. And so the question is, do they then tend to invest that dividend back into the share that it came from as they would if they were trying to maintain some target weight in the share, for instance? And the answer seems to seems to look like not really. Okay, there's not very you know the the, the frequency with which they the amount of shares one quarter later because we only observe this stuff quarterly, the amount of shares has gone up by the amount of the dividend is very rare, and the much much more likely outcome if you're going to do nothing, you put the money in something else. You know the number of shares one quarter later is literally the same as it was before, which is to say you took the cash from the dividend and bought. A different stock, which doesn't mean it's a mistake. It's just casting a different light on the earlier finding, which was that like we'd previously thought that all of the non-reinvestment was just consumption. And this was saying, well, whatever reason mutual funds aren't doing it for, it's not that they're consuming the dividend. And so instead, maybe it's like that they're not keeping track of it. Maybe they're just thinking about aggregate cash balances and they periodically buy something. But that we we were, I, yeah, we didn't know the what why they were doing it specifically. But it was more that the what is curious if you thought that they were just trying to keep a weight of X percent in this stock. So I, I, I maybe can illuminate a little bit of that problem from a practical perspective. Uh, first, we do, uh, as an institutional investor, and I met most of our peers in this space do distribute to grandma. Grandma's the kind of ideal customer. And mutual funds can distribute quarterly. They can distribute monthly. Managed accounts distribute when the dividends are earned. So there are plenty of retirees uh, getting the, the dividends, uh, and that's sort of our ideal customer. However, I can uh, tell you that there's a substantial amount of dividend reinvestment. Uh, so I think you're both, there is free dividend fallacy in the sense of many people do consume, but there is substantial dividend reinvestment, but I'm not 100% certain whether your data allows you to see it as clearly as, at least from a uh, practitioner perspective. I'll tell you that uh, you are correct. What you just described partially explains it. When a institutional account or a mutual fund gets a dividend payment from a company, and, and by the way, that dividend payment could be two weeks after the X date. It can be 30 days after the X date. In the case of some foreign companies, it can be two months after the X date. So there's a, there can be quite a lag between X date and, and payable date. But that money generally doesn't go right back to the same security because it would be highly, highly inefficient to do so. The money goes to the cash account and then the portfolio managers or the investors then periodically top off various holdings. But if you get a, a dividend from a security in a, a portfolio, you're going to end up making a lot of small trades uh, if, you, if you just turn around and put that back. We as portfolio managers certainly try to maintain a certain weight of the various securities in the portfolio. But it's not done on a prorated basis for every dollar that comes in, whether it's a subscription or a dividend payment or an outflow where we have to raise cash. It's we run a certain small amount of cash and then periodically we will top off positions. But our weights for various securities are fairly stable over time, unless we're making a fundamental change. But they're not going to follow the X date or even the payment date 
because money is is temporarily pooled and then invested. So I, I think there's more dividend. My point is, I think there's more dividend reinvestment going on than than you might see. And do remember that there are flows in and out of fun, institutional accounts and mutual sure. funds, it, which it, just make it pretty messy. It, it sounds like we don't disagree very much. I think we were probably just we were thinking about dividend reinvestment as as effectively being reinvesting in the same stock. Um, as opposed to, I think, yeah, the, the, the story you described is, is, yeah, I would totally, I would totally believe that. The only bit that was surprising to me is that it's like, if I think that trading costs are mostly variable costs, it wouldn't seem to matter whether I made one small trade or I did it all at once, unless there's economies from scale. And there are, okay, that, there are. Uh, interesting, yeah. interesting. And also there are retail mechanics and institutional mechanics where a portfolio of equities is not the only holding that a customer has. The customer has four or five different equity portfolios, plus some bond or alternative portfolios, plus a cash account. And what would be extremely difficult is to, when every penny comes in, it immediately goes back out to that same portfolio. So there's a cash account, the cash account builds up. And then periodically, so there's a bit of a cash drag, but that's known to to the parties. Uh, Periodically, there is a rebalancing. And that rebalancing money is fungible to some extent. Some of the uh, income payments from a fixed income portfolio, the, the cash payment may end up in, on the equity side, or some of the dividends may up, end up on the fixed income side as part of a balance. Over a period of years, the weights are what the portfolio manager would like them to be, or the investor would like them to be. But there, there is not a one-to-one linkage, particularly when you do have a, a cash account that generally sweeps the dividends yeah. or the coupon payments, uses that as a cash account. And then periodically, that is rebalanced back into the uh, into the portfolio. So it's it's just uh, I think there's more. As I said, I just think there's yeah. more. No, no, that, that, than- that's that's super interesting. The only thing we did find that doesn't exactly sound like your story is that when you track the weights of dividend and non-dividend paying stocks over time, the weights in the dividend guys are drifting downwards which is what you'd expect if you don't reinvest that amount back into the same stock, that eventually it's going to win, not by a huge amount, but at least by somewhat, that they don't seem, when we measure it, it's, they don't seem to permanently, periodically rebalance up to what they were at. They buy in general or buy other things. or That, curiously, I can't comment on because all of our portfolios are dividend portfolios. There are no low or no uh, dividend-paying uh, ah, securities. I, think, I, I, I know you have a lot of different data sets, but if you were using data over the past 30 years, that phenomenon could be naturally explained by the a decline in the market's yield over that same period uh, because of the rise of non- and low-dividend-paying securities. Okay. I'll have to think about that more. So there were some other factors that, again, kind of, I'm not going to say, uh, well, call them challenges. We did call them challenges. You did point out, uh, you didn't use the term of art, uh, dividend capture, but you referenced it. That is where demand uh, in front of X states is high, and there are implications for share prices. That's probably true. You, you do point out in your initial comments that there, you know kind of two types of dividend investors, those who buy right before a dividend and sell right after, and then those who are holding companies for their cash flows and for extended periods of time, and that you're more in effect, looking at the short-term traders and the implications on share prices for them. I'm sure if you asked uh, 100 dividend managers which type they are, 100 will say that they are uh, the long-term business owners. But you're probably correct that uh, there is some of of dividend capture that goes on. There are portfolios that are specifically designed and marketed as uh, dividend capture portfolios. I don't know whether you looked at covered calls, which is another common common income generation tool. 
we found out about covered calls after we wrote this other paper on this phenomenon, which is on, we call it dividend juicing, which is sort of buying in and out of stocks right around their dividend date. And the, 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 the curious thing from, from this other work was that there's a small number of funds that make explicit claims like the Huntington Dividend Capture Fund and stuff like that. It's like those guys, if you're buying that fund, you absolutely know what you're getting, that you're getting a fund that is that is trying to do this dividend capture and buying in and out of stuff around then. But there's a significantly larger number of funds. I think we, we counted as like 12% or something. That I, I should know the numbers in my own papers, but it's, it's been a while since I've looked at that paragraph. The That what they do is, what you can do is that we have quarterly snapshots from public filings of what these guys are holding. And we know what dividend the fund reports. And so what you can do from that is you can say, well, if they roughly held these shares over the year, what dividend would they have gotten? And for some of them, these numbers are like way, way, way higher. Like the, the number where it's like twice as high as you can plausibly explain with that, which sort of means that by elimination, these funds have to be doing it. And I think that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I guess that the, the thing that we always wondered out of that was like, what fraction of investors in these funds know that this is what's going on or would be happy if they knew that this was what was going on? And that is, was kind of the big open question we got out of that. That's a, that's a fair question. And, you know, they're depleting royalty trusts and asset trusts that, that basically turn assets into income and dividend capture strategies do the same thing. Certainly transparency and communication is always better than not. Also, there are a lot of derivative strategies that are used to uh, you know, highlight income. But I, I think there's such a wide range of income investors and in case for, for myself and for uh, the audience, income-oriented investors, uh, managers. And you know, there, is a, there is a community, <laughs> I'm a representative of it, of long-term business owners who feel that successful businesses making distributions, cash distributions is a sign of their success. In the stock market, it's called a dividend. And although there are costs, which your article really highlights, uh, and you do come to some striking conclusions as to the extent of those costs, I want to get to that in a moment, but that there's still basically just challenges to, to good, an agency cost, as I referenced to you in another communication, agency costs to successful business ownership through the stock market is uh, all of these factors that you address. I, I was a little stunned, and I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not in a position to actually dispute it. But I, I, you guys came to the conclusion that that if you add up all of the what you call varying uh, dividend demand through time, because people are timing their uh, investment in dividends right before X dates, and uh, the other pressures that you identify with low interest rates as a way to uh, create sort of artificial demand. I wouldn't say it's artificial, but demand for dividends, that it can be a cost of 2 to 4% of total return. I, I mark that, boy, that's high. Can you, can you explain how you guys sure. got to that number? So, so, I, I, so what, I don't what, see that, but I, I'm no, no, really sure. Okay, so that, that one needs a little bit of explaining. So what the basic idea is, is that we have this finding that so we're measuring dividend demand by looking at the short-term returns after announcement and before X day, which is to say, and the reason we call that demand is because in that period, there's no news that came at the announcement. There's no uncertainty that was resolved at the announcement. There's no immediate tax consequences because those come at the X day. So if you see the price going up in that time, it just looks like some guy is buying on net to get the dividend. That's kind of how, how we interpreted that. And then these other findings showing that that level of demand is related to um, is, is related to things like low interest rates and it's related to volatility and it's related to recessions. 
what that's another way of saying is that when some people start demanding dividends more, they don't do it randomly. They all kind of do it at the same time. And that has an impact on, on long, that press, pushes exactly, prices exactly. up and therefore future returns down. So in some sense, what it's saying is that if you start getting into dividend paying companies only at the point that interest rates are low and the VIX is high and the market is in a recession, that's probably the point when on average, they're slightly more overvalued than they normally are because of this extra demand. And this is we were, and so we're, we're kind of extrapolating from the short term demand to the longer term slight pricing effects are seen in things. These are admittedly crude measures like market to book and long-term returns. And th- those are not nearly as tightly measured because market to book is related to lots of stuff. If you acknowledge an investor with a 20 or 30 year time horizon, taking a position in dividend paying securities and not, even if they take that position, maybe at the not at the best of times, but if they're holding it for a long period of time, you're not claiming that there's a two to 4% cost to doing so. Is that correct? So you're still paying that over the next... So, I mean, 2 to 4% is, is approximately like what you might lose over the next year, um, you know, is our, our back of the envelope calculation on how overvalued might you be if you might, might these stocks be if you bought them at the time of absolute peak demand. Of course, they're then going to then... It's not that they're going to be... It's not 2 to 4% per year in perpetuity. Um, right, that's the, that's the point I'm making. Yeah, okay, that's yeah, like, sure. Yeah, that yeah, that bit absolutely. You're not losing four percent per year forever. That, that's that, that's not at all. It's it's more a claim about the particular impact of suddenly getting interested in these companies at the point that your you know that demand is already at a maximum, and you've probably seen some of these pricing effects. Fair enough, and I, I you know a lot of counter arguments to that. One of which is long uh, holding periods. The other is that dividend investors are income seeking, but they're also mentally a subset of value investors and naturally are somewhat shy of uh, assets when they're very popular. So I I just wonder if it is indeed that high, but I I get your point. Dividend capture can be a very expensive exercise. You know, your conclusion in this article, push back on a couple of things, but your conclusion in the article, I can't can't disagree with. Uh, Clarification, education, is is useful and people need to understand what I call agency costs, acceptable agency costs uh, of being a dividend investor in the stock market. But you you know you highlight them maybe a little more negatively. But basically, you do agree better understanding, teach investors about the proper role of dividends yes. and so forth. So you you end up not uh, dismissing the concept, just trying to clarify the concept. And I, I is that a fair summation of that that article? So I think one of the bits that we we definitely would would agree with that assessment on is I think if you flip it around and say suppose you were trying to do the 100% by the book asset pricing thing of just compare companies based on their returns it turns out that's shockingly hard to do because even just getting a clean metric of returns you're not going to find it at your brokerage you're not going to find it at Yahoo Finance, you're not going to find it on, on all these places. You go and try and measure market performance with the S&P, the S&P 500, quote unquote, you're not getting it there either. And so in some sense, part of it is that there's, it's not even that, yeah, trying to get people to understand what dividends are and aren't and what the total performance is and how you break that up is something that I think it's, probably worthwhile doing in the sense that if people decide that they want to they want to it's one thing to say that you know like you want to you've decided that you understand what's going on and you want to buy dividend paying companies and that's all fine as opposed to you're just 
not a dividend paying investor who happens to have bought a dividend paying company and you think, how is my company doing? And you look at the price and the price doesn't reinvest the dividend and no one's telling you there's a dividend and suddenly the company looks like it's doing badly. That's a, like, that's the kind of margin where we think that like, okay, well, people definitely, there's definitely scope for improvement on that front. And uh, I'm delighted that you and your co-author went down that path because you followed up with a clarion call article, uh, which appeared two years later, just now, basically. It's called Reconsidering Returns, and it's either currently out or forthcoming in the review of financial studies. Dear listeners, I'm not going to suggest that you, as much as David and Samuel would like you to download, and you're more than welcome to download from SSRN or from their websites, both of these articles from the Journal of Finance and from Review of Financial Studies. But do remember, these are two academic finance people. There are a lot of equations, a lot of T-statistics. However, if you just read the introduction and the summary, you'll get the point, and I encourage you to do that. This is all available on the internet. The introduction and the, the conclusions for both of these articles are eminently readable, eminently understandable. And for your follow-up article, which is a perfect segue of what you just said, is there are these issues with returns and behavior, but you find an underlying issue, which is basically counting. And I, I found reconsidering returns to be fascinating and incredibly relevant. I have struggled with clients for the past 20 years on the very same issues that uh, you provide at almost a 100-year history of why we're all counting wrong. And uh, I have a couple of blog posts about this, and you have a wonderful article, but yours is much more comprehensive. Uh, please provide uh, kind of an overview of, you sort of were doing that segue, of how your concerns about these performance or these, these anomalies or behavioral issues led you to decide, well, people are just looking at the wrong things here. Yeah. So one of the things that the, the particular thing that we're mostly focused on in that paper is the question of like market returns. Okay. Because nearly every index that gets quoted, of which the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones are the most famous, but it turns out this holds across the world and everywhere other than Germany and Brazil. It holds in lots of places. If you're seeing a market index, that market index is typically a price index, which is to say it doesn't, the S&P 500 in its base form doesn't reinvest dividends on days when companies pay them. Okay, or, don't, or at least doesn't even track them. It doesn't add it back in to just compare like what's the total performance of these companies. And there is an S&P 500 total returns index, but that's almost never the number you see quoted. You have to search it out specifically. And if you don't, you're going to get quoted this other thing, which is like totally broken. In fact, I, I mean, we, we were sort of in, in the sense that like it doesn't, it is honestly hard to see what economic quantity of interest to people, like just the price, which is dropping on the X day, like what measure of the economy is that meant to be capturing? But that's what they see. And the, the paper that we're sort of looking at is saying that like there's a lot of mistakes that's, or a lot of things that flow on from that that kind of look as if people don't get what they're seeing, that they're treating this thing as, as an actual return. So it's like one, I mean, the, the, to us, one of the most hilarious consequences is like you can look at what journalists write in the paper. If the market drops a little bit because a big company paid a dividend, they're like, oh, wow, the market's gone down a little bit. And they suddenly write more pessimistic stuff, which is totally bonkers. But that's when you look up what happened to the market today, that's the number that, that you're probably going to be looking at. So let me let me back up and provide some clarification for the audience. 
Within the industry, we do use total return. We are legally obligated, of course, and for as a dividend investor or dividend uh, manager, of course, use total return. The price return that you're referencing is the common currency of trade. It's the S&P 500. We won't even discuss. It is beneath discussion as to why the Dow Jones product is still exists because of how it's calculated. It is, it's not that it's confusing. I think it, it's damaging as to how it's uh, uh, calculated. But the S&P and the other price indices, as you point out, there was only a total return index for the S&P 500 starting from, I believe, 1988. But the industry does calculate total returns on a daily basis. And one of the things you guys didn't address, but which I have uh, had, uh, had to point out to clients and institutional clients and uh, Consultants over and over again. When we're a dividend investor, they uh, ask us, "Well, you know, are your returns due to dividend reinvestment?" I said, "No. Total return is total return. We calculate returns on a daily basis and then geometrically link them. So on day one or day seven or day 320, if a dividend is captured, it's included in that day's total return, and then we geometrically kind of start all over. And the next day, it's geometrically linked to the to the prior uh, return. So client asset levels, of course, depend on whether." Uh, dividends are reinvested, whether new capital is put in, whether cash is distributed, uh, and therefore dividend reinvestment matters to a client account. But the total return of a any individual investment is independent of dividend reinvestment because the mechanism of capturing total return includes the dividend. It's not the reinvestment of the dividend, it's the payment of the dividend. You would be uh, shocked the number of high institutional people who who do not know that. They are so used to this notion, as you guys articulate, that uh, everything is price-based and the dividend, to some extent, there's a dividend fallacy among some of uh, those more sophisticated investors. They're, they're thinking, oh, the only way dividend-paying securities have an attractive total return is through dividend reinvestment. That is simply not how the industry <laughs> operates. So I'm uh, a cry for help. You guys have written an article that, that helps. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, <laughs> but yeah, it we, yeah, it, uh, but uh, we're, we're we're very happy. It's uh, it the, the bit one of the bits that's most interesting about the bit of the paper that I'm actually most happiest with is not the bit that I think it'll ever get cited for, but the bit that was most fun is one of the reasons we're looking at. We're trying to figure out like why are these indices so broken, and the the answer to it is that one like the surprising answer is that. The whole concept of a return dates to approximately 1960. And I say that with a, with a quite large degree of confidence because I went back, at least in the academic sense, what industry people are doing, harder to say. But if you go back and read what academic articles in, say, like the 20s and the 30s and the 40s were describing as performance, they just thought of it as price changes okay, or dividend yields, but never the two together. It just was not done the con the word return was like a vague word like performance and it mostly meant dividend yield and dividend yield half the time was quoted over par rather than being quoted over prices and all this is a roundabout way of saying the reason these indices are broken is these indices were made before people really knew what a return was like the dow jones is like the only is price weighted which is bonkers and the only way the I, i'm certain the only way you get a price weighted index is you say first average the price then compute the percent change and we look at that and go well that is a price weighted return without dividends but it's like that's not what it is they're just averaging the prices and tracking that number because they thought of it like wheat prices it's like well this is kind of the average price of stocks for the day and so it's going up or down and, and so in some sense these are like legacy hangovers of this time 
when people didn't really understand it, but then they got established and that's what everyone quotes. And then it ends up still having, having these kind of big consequences. Thank, thank you for using the term bonkers. Uh, that is captures the, the problem very nicely. You have a fun part in that article going through 100 years of newspaper commentaries, the flaws in the indices. And it. Uh, I, I have to tell you, this is a profoundly significant problem. You also quoted or, or did some research to suggest that it, it's not just kind of a measuring game, that it actually impacts the markets. And you know, obviously that the uh, indices, the, the main ones are price only, and that they would underperform total return indices. That affects people's behavior. That fund flows benefit those funds that beat the price index rather than on the fund's total return. So if you're a high dividend fund, you have a higher total return, but much more of that return comes from the income rather less from the price change. You're more likely to underperform any other type of index on a price basis, but you might compete quite nicely, thank you, on a total return basis, and yet investors are only looking at the one rather than the other. Uh, yeah. You dip your toes into beta, and we won't get too it's... far into beta, but uh, comment on how you know this simple 100-year-old problem actually has profound kind of almost operational consequences for investors and for the stock market itself. Yeah, well, the well, funnily enough, the mutual fund flows result is actually even worse than that because it's not just that you get so it's like academics have been telling people, and you see it quoted in Wall Street. It's like fifty percent of fund managers can't beat the S and P five hundred, and that's the words you hear. Can it beat the S and P five hundred? And so you find out investors have taken this extraordinarily literally, and it's like beating the S&P 500 is like by a basis point, first of all, which is like not really what I think was intended by this statement. But then you say, what's the metric of it? It's comparing the price index of the S&P 500 with the fund's net asset value, which is not only not a return, but it's not only not even in the same units because it also doesn't correct for capital gains distribution. So it's like, Two numbers, neither of which is a return, neither of which are even really related to each other, especially closely. But the key bit is, if you go on Yahoo Finance and plot the fun and add comparison of like the S&P 500, that's what you're going to see. And that's going to be your decision of like how the fund is the fund is going, which is sort of evident, which then shows up in, in later fund flows. So very successful operations will have, by definition, uh, substantial capital gains. It's basically held against them in that. Yes. Path. If you distribute the high capital gains, that's going to make you, yes, realized capital gains will make you look worse. Unrealized capital gains will make you fine. That too is going to feed into it. I mean, you know, it's all part of the, you know, which is none of which is, is really what, what you'd expect. Let's, how you'd let's, expect capital to be allocated. But. Let's veer a little bit into financial theory about how sure. failure of these indices affects uh, forecasts and capital asset pricing model because beta, which everyone says is terrible, but everyone uses all the time, that if you're measuring, are you measuring, beta matters, uh, it matters in a beta calculation what you're measuring against. And if what you're measuring against is flawed because it's, say, price only, or total return, doesn't matter, but that you, you need to know which one you're looking at when you're calculating a sensitivity to returns. And that does not appear to be the case based on your work. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about at the intuitive idea of beta is that it's about a stock's exposure to the market. In other words, if the stock go, if the market goes up one percent, how much should the stock go up? Okay, and then the question is, well, okay, that that's all fine, 
what is the market? Well, you get back to the same the same problem, which is that if your idea of the market is the S&P 500, chances are you're probably paying more attention to movements in the price component of the S&P 500 than to the dividend. And so if you think about our standard beta calculation, which is just on returns, both bits of returns get added up equally. Okay, They're about the overall performance of the total day's news. But it turns out when you look across a huge range of portfolios, the beta on the price change bit is much bigger than the beta on the dividend yield bit. And for the vast majority of them, you can't rule out a dividend yield beta of zero, which is to say that the dividend is basically being almost completely ignored um, in terms of, you know, in terms of how that, you know, in terms of how it's, you know, how the stock's individual day's returns go. And then one of the consequences of that is because they're ignoring this part of returns, this actually leads to predictable eventual, you know, reversal the next day, which is to say that if you should have, the dividend yield made the return, meant that you should have gone up by more, it takes them a day to sort of catch up and realize that yesterday's news was actually better than, than it seemed. Uh, and if you use that over long forecasting periods it, uh, and quantitative investing based on the betas, you can get yourself all tangled in knots, is, is I, I, my conclusion concerning your, your point. If you're docking, taking it, again, not just for a historical measure of beta, but using it to invest portfolios. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that like this in some this part was in in some ways a little bit of a swiper to that the academic asset pricing, much of whom they don't literally believe the cap M, but I think they still believe equivalent a lot of equivalently, you know, like market exposure type ideas. And they 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 they've moved on to fancier models since then. But I think in some sense, finding that even just this basic thing of like, what is the exposure of the stock um, to the market and that it doesn't seem to fit almost any of these models because it's like trying to write a model which says that your overall exposure to the economy should depend on the day's dividend X day yield, even though that's not even news that day. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're, you're going to struggle to fit that into your consumption-based asset pricing framework. So I, I will tell you that even though CAPM is thoroughly discredited, outside of academia and largely discredited maybe inside academia because of its simplicity and it's used on teaching purposes, it lives on longer than it should have. I've written a screed against it myself. Beta is still used in a practitioner sense as a shorthand for an insensitivity to the market until what you guys come up with next as a better set of tools actually makes its way from academia into uh, onto practitioners' desks, we're still going to be using this 60-year-old pretty flawed uh, shorthand model, I, I have to say. So please work on that. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the only you, thing I would say about the CAPM is that there is a great defense of the CAPM, but it is never the one that it is made, which is that you can make a strong argument that says the CAPM is a fantastic normative model. That is what investors should be doing. But unfortunately, they're screwing it up and markets aren't efficient and that's why we get alphas. And if no, I'm not saying that's true, but I'm saying that is a completely coherent defense of teaching and telling people about the CAPM and it just treats all of the deviations from it as just being screw-ups, essentially. But for some reason, the defenders of the CAPM, they, they, I've never heard any of them make that argument. Oh, like, I, th- I, I think, uh, I believe Merton Miller made that argument uh, that you know the normative notion... But my, my point would be, or answer would be, 
a normative notion that has failed for 60 years is no longer even a useful normative notion. And that it is, uh, if it can't survive for 60 years in the, in the marketplace of practitioners as opposed to academic, that it's, that it, the theory is essentially wrong. Uh, but that, that, that's not your, that doesn't have to be your view. We'll just say that that's, uh, <laughs> no, no, that's my sure. view. But I, I get your point. You, you guys end up in this article uh, in Reconsidering Returns, which again, I really, really like, uh, making some practical select, uh, suggestions along the line of, of nudges. But you write, you know, that stickiness in institutional norms is, uh, you know, confused from stuff that occurred a century ago. Uh, back of the envelope calculations made a century ago are still present uh, in your brokerage statements uh, today and that there are, quote, inattentive agents who do not understand how broken these systems are and that it's it's time for a nudge and really a shift towards showing total return, what we call total return, what you guys refer to as returns, but total return in a more meaningful sense on websites, in statements, and in calculations. Is that a fair summary of your, your, your yeah, conclusion? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think the... <laughs> We jokingly titled afterwards that perhaps we should have called the article, quote, stop using the S&P 500, end quote. It's like, and really, really stop using the Dow Jones. But like, I think in some sense, yeah, I think that there's on, on, on a range of measures, it's like the bit that I think is almost indisputable is that people should know what number they're actually looking at. You know, and if for some reason you want to look at the price change only and you want the dividend to just be seen in the cash account or you want to not, you know, but that's all one thing, but it's more that like every, nearly every, like at least in our experience, probably only a quarter of the academics I've spoke to even knew that the S&P 500 didn't reinvest dividends in this base form, which is to say people don't know, like that, you know, that people don't know what they're seeing on their brokerage. They just assume it's something sensible and they usually haven't, haven't looked into the gory details like we have in painful detail to try and figure this out. But, but what, yeah, without that, then, then you can sometimes get led astray. I, I, I would, I, I will let you know that again, within highly regulated manufacturers or asset managers, we do <laughs> measure ourselves against total return. Yeah, that we, I we totally believe. To. Yeah, that I yeah, believe. So it's, sure. it's not, it's bleak, but not uh, completely hopeless. But in the financial media and in the popular psychology, it is exactly as you described. We used to show, and I'll end with this anecdote, we used to show, I don't want to mention the names of the securities, but we used to show a chart which had an old economy company and it was a chart, and then you'd overlay it with a very new economy company that makes very stylish electronic devices and is named after a tree fruit. And you would see that the when you overlay the price charts, and that fruit company was publicly traded starting in, I believe, 1982 or thereabouts. The other company was you know, much, much older. But if you overlay from 1982 to a certain point in time, just the price charts, the the price chart of the fruit company was uh, superior to the price chart of the old economy company. When you overlay the total return, it reversed. And the total return of the old economy company was substantially superior to the total return of the fruit company because the fruit company, for much of its existence, didn't have a dividend. Then it did. It actually stopped its dividend. They reinstituted, but it's always had a low dividend, shall we say. Mm. So the total return has not been significantly helped by the dividend, but the old economy company had a substantial dividend for its entire existence. And the total return chart basically flipped the price only return. And these are very well-known companies. One was clearly an old economy company and one was a very new economy company. And it was a shocking chart. Last couple of years, the relationship failed because uh, as you know, 
many of these uh, strikingly new economies have just gone vertical the last two or three years. But up until that point, it was a, a good means of showing the difference between price return and total return. So my guest has been David Solomon, Associate Professor at the Carroll School of Management at Boston College. David, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. And thank you for in your articles with Samuel Hartzmark, uh, and I expect your future work, uh, that you will uh, continue to help clarify for investors what they're doing so that they can do it better. So thank you again for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.